Hello, friends. This is Against Everyone with Connor Abib. That was the beginning of a live performance of the song I Can Buy You, and that was Nina Pashin singing the song. It's from her band A Camp with her husband Nathan Larson. You probably know Nina better from her band The Cardigans. And I'll be continuing my series of episodes talking about music with musicians uh, here with Nina. I started this episode with Nina singing that song rather than maybe one of the hits by the Cardigans that you know, because I wanted to do something that centered on her voice a little bit more. The Cardigans are a band that I grew up with, as I'm sure many of you did too. I first heard Nina's music before the uh, omnipresent song Loveful hit uh another musician, Ted Leo, who's been on the show, and his bandmates from his then-band Chisel played the Cardigan song Carnival for me uh, from their first U.S. album, Life. You might have heard that somewhere, too, because, like Loveful, it was also on a movie soundtrack. I will never know, cause you will never show.
what an exhilarating and <laughs> surprising experience that was. It was so strange. It was as if I had heard the exact sound before. Some sort of weird French new wave European indie pop blend, but I couldn't place it. So it also felt entirely new. And I followed the Cardigan's career after that, album after album, each one sounding very different. So <laughs> if I would say to somebody that, you know, I love the Cardigans, they're one of my favorite bands, and that I saw them play with Beck and with Blur, I would have to sometimes say, oh, the Cardigans, you know. And I would sing, love me, love me, and then people would know. It was like telling people that, uh, I loved Blur in the U.S. before anybody really knew who they were, and I would either sing a little part of Girls and Boys, or I'd go, woo-hoo, and then people knew. Oh, yeah, Blur. Because that song was everywhere. I mean, the Cardigans were on Beverly Hills 90210 playing at the Beach Pit. You almost couldn't get away from that song. And I loved it, and somehow it did not become dated. It still sounds fresh and new. The albums that followed, uh, Gran Turismo, Long Gone Before Daylight, and finally Super Extra Gravity, all shifted um, in sound. So if I were to play a Cardigan song from that last album, Super Extra Gravity, and you weren't familiar with them, you might not actually recognize it at first as the Cardigans. The songs are extremely complex, and Nina's voice gets more and more, I would say, daring on each album. It's something I find so profound about musicians who decide to stay in their integrity rather than just chasing down another hit. Um, I mean, the Cardigans did have other hits, particularly here in Europe, even if none hit quite so big as Love Fool. But again, all those songs were very different. Here's one of them. I came home in the morning That's the third single, Live and Learn, from their third album, Long Gone Before Daylight. So there's an integrity in style when it comes to the music that Nina makes. And there's also a strength that uh, might not seem apparent at first, which is a strength of, as I said, a daring but also versatile voice. A voice that if you were to simply see Nina walking around, you would not know had been contained in this person. It is powerful, and when Nina sings, she is my favorite live singer of all time, it just fills the place with presence. 
Uh, as an example of that, I'm going to play a cover that Nina performed. It's her singing A Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin in Sweden in front of members of Led Zeppelin. Uh, it was uh, a tribute. Um, and this is, so this is live in Stockholm in 2006, and she just nails it. On this episode, we talk about the songs that get stuck in our heads, the songs that are always playing in the background of our lives, even if we don't like them, we still know them. The songs we sing to our families and to our loved ones. We talk about the way that music found Nina and has worked with her in so many different ways. As I've said, I so appreciate Nina's music and her voice. Her projects with the Cardigans, uh, a camp, her solo work, and her recent work with Scottish musician James Yorkston. Since art works with the invisible and constitutive forces of our lives, and music is a form of art that does that, to work with art honestly, to follow it where it takes us, rather than following the temptation to stay in one place, to engage with art as a mystery, something that is always a step ahead of us, uh, to be in that mystery school of art, but also to bring who we are to it means that we can move it forward through us so that art can exist and all the constitutive and mystery forces of it can exist honestly in us. And that is one of the most profound things we can offer to the world. That kind of integrity, which uh, Nina exemplifies, an integrity which is not sealed off, but open. Not like a confinement, but more like a kind of light almost, offers a strength to culture itself. And a strengthened cultural realm, a strengthened artistic realm, is something we need more than ever, as the political and economic forces seem to rule the day. I hope that you enjoy and find inspiration in this episode, and that you look deeper into Nina's music if you're not already familiar with most of it. Uh, the episode has some of those songs throughout and ends with a, a song that she wrote with her husband, Nathan Larson, who is also a musician, was in the band Shudder to Think, um, What the Hell Are You Crying For? But I've also created a Spotify playlist for this episode, and uh, I have also with the past two music-themed episodes, the first one featuring Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy, and Ian Lynch from Lancome. Those are 
in the show notes on Patreon. This podcast is funded exclusively by Patreon patrons. So if you like this, please do uh, sign up and support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. All the episodes are free, including past music episodes uh, with Stephen Malcolmus from Pavement, Amanda Palmer, Ian Mackay from Fugazi, Patty Schemmel from Hole, Ted Leo, and more. And also, every episode, you get to hear this little song uh, by Ben Chasney from Six Organs of Admittance, who wrote the theme song with me, uh, or reworked it after I originally wrote it with Jeb Havens. So that's at the top of each show. Again, patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Thanks for supporting the show. All right, here's my conversation with Nina Passion. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Nina Passion. Hello, Connor Habib. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to I start with something you said to me a little while ago about teaching, which I've been thinking about since you told me, which is that, you know, you're teaching at, is it University of Copenhagen? Yeah. And um, yes, the, the, yeah, the Rhythmic Conservatory, RMC is the name, yeah. Yeah. And one of the exercises that you're giving your students was I'm going to, I want you to, you know, pick a song or hear a song and talk about a song that it reminds you of. And mm-hmm. I don't, I've been thinking about this since you said, I mean, you said this to me quite a long time ago. And I keep thinking about it because I've been thinking, I've been so taken by it because I think it is the way that we, live with music, whether it's a DJ set or playing songs at a friend's house or <clears throat> or doing like a Spotify playlist, a whatever, but we don't try to learn about music in that way. And so I do want to talk about that exercise as just a way into music because I love it. I love the idea that I'm going to learn about something from the space between two songs that I listen to and trying to figure out why one evoked the desire to hear the next. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's proven to be an amazing exercise. It's an exercise that one of my colleagues came up with. Uh, so I think more, more teachers at my school at least use it. We call it music on music, the exercise. Mm. Um, yeah, so so one of the students will bring one of their own work, um, and everybody in the class has to listen to that, as you said, listen to that song that somebody created, and bring one or two examples of something that you associate with. It can also be a video, so it can be a snippet of a movie, or a, a dance, or a piece of art that they can describe, or something. And it's proven, one thing it's proven to be is that everybody loves the exercise for some reason. Uh, everybody... <laughs> Everybody who's brought their piece of work, uh, you know, has sometimes uh, feedback sessions and critique can make, can actually, there's always one person who gets in one way a little bit in a bad mood because they feel a little offended or hurt, you know, <laughs> which we also always have to work on how you talk about music without, you know, without when being sensitive to, to sensitive artists' souls. But uh, so everybody also loves to just 
you know, and it's so helpful to hear what other people associate your music with because it always takes them places that sometimes they, they'd be like, yeah, I totally, I know it's, I sound a lot like bloody, my bloody Valentine. I always do kind of, or whatever. But it usually, if, mostly it's people come with examples. They're like, oh, really? Is this mm. what you think of, you know? So it's a fantastic way of sort of circling in your context away, in a way, mm. figuring out what you derive from and what you remind um other people of and and um, and it's for, for the people who do, who for the classmates who do the exercise. It's amazing to just be told to do it to work on that associative. Uh, some people think it's really boring because some people only really care about their own music. Uh-huh. So it's a good exercise <laughs> to actually really uh, make people do that job with somebody else's work. You know? Can you give me an example of like a song that? inspired another song you know like one that felt like it really fit for you one of the reasons why i'm i want to go into this a little bit more is i'm also just thinking about songwriting and how mm-hmm. you know when people write songs you know all my friends who are musicians they're like oh it's the song that sounds like this guns and roses song or it's the song that mm-hmm. sounds like you know even <laughs> even in writing songs people will say make it more this you know make it more like mm-hmm. a I don't know why I keep going to like glam metal, but make it more like, <laughs> you know, I saw red by Warren or something like that. You bring these influences in, but can you give me an example of maybe that you remember that stood out to you in the class um, where this happened? Well, um, well, of course, then, then I, would, I would have to sort of um, maybe talk about the piece that my, my artist yeah, brought yeah. in also. I can't really on top of my head now, but I know I would, I would personally often sit and take, because they have such good taste in music and fun taste in music, that gen- those generations also who are younger than me, obviously, but there's a couple of generations between them. They're not just one age group. They are just more, I love how they're so open about music in general they're not they're not at all locked into genre or or anything they just whatever they like or are interested in they're gonna you know they're not so self-conscious about what they mm. show i'd always get really fun and interesting um things that i would write down and go home and listen to sort of i, I can't actually remind give you examples right now that's fine but it would be anything and it could also be like something <clears throat> it could be a mariah carey song but it could also be like a a classical piece you know, by an old uh, mm. composer, or it could be a you know a, a intro to a TV show or anything. Um, mm. so, and sometimes uh, two students would bring the same example, of course, because some music does clearly remind of something, you know. And mm. yeah, I mean, it, I like that you said the Mariah Carey song <laughs> um, because I would I think of her as someone who whose songs live in the background of my life, but I'm not like a big fan of, you know, I mean, I might catch myself humming one, but it's so funny that I think we think of music as it's like, Oh, here's this. We, I like this band. I like this song or whatever, but probably at least for some of our lives until we're a bit older, like the songs that live with us or around us are not necessarily the songs that we love. Um, mm. There are more songs that we kind of don't like, but that still stay in our conscious. And they could be commercial jingles, they could be mm. whatever. And so we're populated by all these reference points that are not even necessarily anything that we'd even claim to like, and yet they stick with us. Yeah, I just recently sort of paid attention. I mentioned to you before we started recording that I have issues that I have a hard time relaxing. <laughs> and I am so, I'm a fucking machine. Uh, and I always, every time I'm in the mode where I'm just doing 
stuff and being really efficient, which I am most of the time. I've recently paid attention to that I have a, a soundtrack to that mode and it's really annoying. I've sang it to Nathan. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Nathan's my husband. He's like, oh, God, is that what's in your head? And it's really annoying and it's uh, super enervating. So I've been thinking about that, like, why the fuck have I, is my brain sort of, you know, um, putting this tune into my head? It's almost like the, the soundtrack itself is a punishment in a way, you know. <laughs> That I need to suffer. Are you not going to say <laughs> so what it I'm, is? You can say what it is and I'll cut it out if you don't want to. It has like, a, I'm, I'll to see if I can think, because I also realized that I once uh, sort of recited it to Nathan in the wrong way. And then I'm like, no shit, that's a different thing. I'll see if I get, uh, if I think of it, Connor, during the, <laughs> right now I feel quite relaxed. Um, it's to talk to you today is good because I'm sitting down <laughs> and, um, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel distracted and relaxed. So it's good. <laughs> well, so, but it's not, uh, so it's not a song by someone else. It's actually just like, like a no. ditty, like and like Falderall that's a, in your in your mind that's just playing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a composition by my brain and it's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> that's it's funny. Like, it's I also mean, like on like a seven. I think it's like on a, a seven beat or something, like seven eighths or something like that. Really hmm. complicated and annoying. Yeah. No, I mean, I something I talked about with Will Oldham when he was on a few episodes back. I I was saying, you know. I so I dream songs all the time. Uh, constantly like I'll wake up and the melody will be in my head. And he was very he was very right. He was like, Yeah, the melody can be good. He's like, but the lyrics are always bad, aren't they? And I was like, they're always yeah. absolutely terrible. <laughs> but you're <laughs> um, saying that you're dreaming up songs. You're not think you're not dreaming songs that exist that you've heard that exactly. already in the yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. N- new songs. But it's also just reminding me of the way, not just that there's the soundtrack of other songs like Mariah Carey or, you know, um, whatever it is now, but it's also that we're constantly writing little songs all the time, walking around the house, humming a, a melody that never existed before. I find this so interesting that, because again, the way we tend, I think, to focus on music is... These are the bands I like. This is the song that I love. Um, this is the kind of music I like. But it it's really invasive. Almost. <laughs> you can't mm. go even a, a, a few feet without music coming into mm. your, you know, into your life, your being, your ears, or your mind. Complete. I can be quite. I mean, I I I also love it, but I can I can have um, moments when I really wish I could will music out of my head, and, and it's really hard. Um, because it stresses me in a way. Sometimes music, just its existence can stress me because it does remind me of work and duty and expectations, you know. So mm. sometimes I can just wish music did not exist. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a place where it doesn't for you? Or do you have to actually do your like Buddhist no mind meditation and <laughs> tie it to a balloon and let it fly away in your, <laughs> your contemporary? Uh, I can't really. What I do is I listen very much to talk radio and podcasts and uh, i think that uh, has to do with it uh, a lot of people choose music when but i i i don't need more music in my ears you know I, but to so talk uh distracts me anybody's listening to my podcast for that reason i apologize for doing these episodes on music um <laughs> I ruined the vibe. but as long also as you market them right so we can avoid them <laughs> i mean i think it's also very funny that that would be the case because you've written you know one of the most uh, 
famous and loved, but also somewhat notorious earworms of all time. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, a lot of people probably have that loop. I mean, I'm sure they have it looping at now that I've brought it up. So. And, um, yeah, but it, it has that song has the quality of one of those uh, head loops that you want to you know kill yourself if you get stuck in. <laughs> so I'm sure I didn't write that music, so I'm not gonna take credit for it in any way. But um, I mean, that's uh, I mean, it, it's the kind of a melody that can drive. That I'm happy. I mean, it had to be written by Peter. I, I guess he just needed to get it out of his his own head. Yeah, go crazy. Uh, it's funny because you know if I would tell people. Um, you know, if I would say the cardigans and they don't know who you are, I just sing, love me, love me. And it's like blur. You know, if I tell people uh, I like blur in the U S they don't know who blur is. I go, you know, and I, yeah. I wonder what I'm sure this is like, people have asked this question in a way that I don't, I'm not really that interested in, which is like, what's it like being known for that song or whatever. But actually what I'm more interested in is, um, I mean, do you feel some kind of strange relationship to this thing that is playing in people's heads like that? Like, not about your career, but just knowing that you kind of set this thing free into the world in a way. I mean, that's a rare accomplishment. Um, and I, I'm not sure, like, I, I was thinking about just being in, I mean, obviously the scale is quite different, but just thinking about being in all the movies I was in. And the way that those are out there for forever, you know, and the way that, you know, men primarily are still engaging with me in that feeling and in that way. Mm-hmm. And what I've offered and how it's kind of dispersed me in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I, sometimes I think about like I'll just be sitting in my reading room here in the house and I'll be thinking about how I'm distributed into the world in a way that's mm-hmm. not allowing me to actually just be in the room. It's almost like I, I've dispersed myself somehow in a way that feels mm-hmm. good sometimes, but other times often quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. It's also that song, our one song, the way I'm mostly distributed in the world. It's also very, I mean, it's it's kind of not really representative of the average sound of my band, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I think it is rep- representative of us, but it's like uh, it's not. Uh, it's a unique piece in a way, or or rather, maybe also just representing us at an early stage or whatever. Um, I used to be more bothered by it uh, when I was younger because I felt that it would, you know. Now I don't feel the same need of people, uh, you know, understanding all of me. There mm. was a period in my life when I was more frustrated by being sort of pigeonholed or sort of people were, you know, I was meeting assumptions about me all the time Mm. that bothered me more. I still do these days, but I don't really care as much. So Mm. it's easier. I can, and I'm also just more, it's easier for me to immediately be like, yeah, that's because of that. And what can I do about it now? You know? Yeah. Acceptance. What changed that for you? Like how did you change into not caring as much? 
I think in general, I've had a problem in my life, especially when I was younger, that I took things so seriously. I thought it was so problematic that people will assume that uh, love pool is me somehow, because I also sort of didn't think, you know, I was a little snobby and pick, you know, I thought it was very important that people understood that I was also, mm. you know, complex and dark or, <laughs> you know. That love me, love me, say that you love me was maybe not necessarily the soundtrack of me, but mm. uh, just a song by my band. And that I think that's also something that most people can agree happens with age. I just don't feel that the story of me is me as much anymore, <laughs> just because you, you uh -huh. know. And it's also, I'm, I'm happy to, if people think I'm, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky, la-di-da, it's fine. I mean, maybe it's nice people think better, but maybe it's a good thing to assume of somebody, you know? <laughs> no, in fact, you're the queen of darkness. I mean, it's really completely not. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you, Connor. <laughs> Finally, someone gets the story. No, I uh, think it's more annoying people who desperately try to convince that they're dark people to the world than people who desperately try to convince that they're happy-go-lucky, to be honest. So I'd rather be no widely known as that than as somebody who's... Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something you said in a, a ton of interviews is just um, about this point in your life where you didn't really have the ambition to be a singer and all of that. But, um, <clears throat> you know, now it's <laughs> from song to song to song to song that you wrote, that you created, that you listened to. I mean, it's, it, you know, inextricably woven into you know, your destiny in a way, like the, who, who you are in this, you know, in, incarnation or whatever. And so um, I, I'm just sort of thinking about how songs, one song to the next, the next has actually kind of led you down this path in into your life and what that deepening presence of music must have been like for you. Um, I mean, I, I just think about the aspirations I've had in my life and you know, they all kind of, you know, when I was a kid, I used to want to be an actor. Well, I did that in a weird way, you know, yeah, you I were, mostly yeah. just wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really, I mean, I wrote some essays and stuff, but I didn't really get to do that until my book came out last year. So it's, you know, and I'm 46 now, but to find something culminating around you, that was not the initial desire. And then to find yourself really such a presence with that art, um, mm -hmm. How, how that must have been experienced by you and where, where you're at with it now. Well, it, it's been different in different times of my life. I, I have, in for periods, found it incredibly tragic, you know, and thinking, mm. feeling really sad about um, that that sort of happened to me, who was an ungrateful recipient of it, if you see mm. what I mean. Yeah. And I would feel, feel like I also sort of, you know, and I've been feeling like what, what could I have done and what could I have been if this hadn't come mm. my way and this hadn't sort of swept me away? So there's been feelings, there's been times when I've been really feeling like that's dominated and I've been feeling sort of hostage um, by it and stuff. Um, I think the, um, I can still get that sometimes because I have a complicated relationship to work, but I also feel these days mostly i feel like oh my god how lucky i was in a way to just because it's also it also sucks to figure out what you want to do and it sucks to <laughs> accomplish things yeah you know it sucks to find your path to what you want i also did not know 
what I wanted. I can have ideas still, things that I that would have maybe suited me better or something. But now I'm I'm just feeling like I I, I can also look at it as a present from life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think I also can feel more sort of happy with it because I'm like, thanks to that, that that just sort of came along and I joined and that I still can do it. You know, I I, th- I don't think I would still get gigs if we didn't have that level of um, fame and, you know, not- notoriety and, you know, you know, parts of what I've done has made people trust in what I do. So I can still do this weird little tours with James, you know, that are absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. While I also still get to play with my, you know, pop group that I formed when I was, that we formed when I was 18. Mm-hmm. So I also feel like um, <laughs> right now I sort of feel like, you know, that I'm, uh, I'm just so happy that it was also something that was not just like a, one hit to wonder well it was i guess but it was also more. <laughs> and i still and i still get to do it because i'm more i said i talked to my husband the other day about this that he has a job that he loves and it's a job that is where there's where age is never a problem you know he's a film composer and the other things but mostly that and my job actually at least in the past has had a certain uh, age sensitivity mm. in a way uh in, in in worst cases it totally can. And I just also feel like so I can also think like God, I'm turning fifty next year and I'm I'm still, you know, wanted in this field. And I people still think what I do is, is relevant and, you know, people buy tickets and you know, I can so I can also feel like like that I owe that to mm. to this thing coming, um weeping me away. <laughs> yeah, well there's so much Actually, there's so much to say there. So one is like, I'm thinking of this line from Demian by Herman Hesse, where he writes, uh, nothing is more, something like nothing is more despicable to a man than becoming what he is. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was thinking about the times of resistance, but it's, it's also interesting that you like to think about this thing, to think about music finding you because I mean, I, Sorry, this sounds like a little, I don't know why this, I don't know why I feel like weirdly uncomfortable saying this, but like, I've been like, um, you know, like massive fan of the Cardigans from Life, which is the first one that was really available in the US, like, in any way, like, to Super Extra Gravity, which I think is one of the greatest rock albums something that's so striking to me is that you can sing any well (laughs) all the kinds of music you've tried at least um you can sing any sort of type of music and then with a camp and um this project with james yorkston i mean all of these ways so it's not just that (laughs) it's not just that uh music kind of found you and uh, I mean, I know you're saying you're in some ways sometimes felt ungrateful for it, but it could do so much through you and take so many varied forms. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary for 
somebody that was like, mm, it's not just that you had a great singing voice, but that you could sing, you can sing so many different kinds of songs in so many different kinds of ways, whether it was country or rock or this kind of breathy, you know, French new wave <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it fit everywhere it sought you out. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily have a question about that. Maybe I just am wondering if you've reflected on how varied it lived with you yeah i think that's um i think that's a nice byproduct of the fact that i have not been writing that much music myself you know i have written lyrics but mostly to other people's music i've written some music myself but mostly mostly my my practice is really to be a a craftsperson you know Mm. a tool and i'm gonna tool might sound sort of um I know what you mean. Of, of it, but <laughs> yeah, fucking tool. <laughs> and, and that's uh, that's the way I've sort of I've had periods when I felt that that wasn't that I thought it was sort of a, a shallow approach to the job to only be singing. So I've been you know for years hope thinking that I should write more and be more of like an author as well. But I think that's why this project with James Yorkston right now suits me so well because I've also been really happy to be resting in his music in a way and to be a you know just doing his music in a way and i'm also enjoying the fact that i'm more of like a person in the band sam and Jeannie mcgregor came visiting they told me everything was fine then up jumped the devil and then everything was lost Grace was lost, did you not hear? Of course you did. Then tell me, where the hell were you when we needed you? James Sam needed you. No, we do not look the same. How could we be on the age? I mean, is this why I was born to carry all this hurt? Some cruel experiment not the i have no i love the music and i'm i I would stand up for it any day but it's also not mine you know Mm. i don't own it he does Mm -hmm. so so i i think uh i've never i've never attached myself to a certain kind of music too much because what i've been singing is what i've liked not what i've made that's why it's been a lot of different things i think yeah yeah well i mean i want to talk about singing a, a bit Something I heard you say once was <laughs> in relation to the age thing that you were saying with Nathan, your husband. It's like everybody keeps asking me to write like a jazz album or do something like that. But like 
like it's so ageist, you know, and it's ageist uh, about your audience and you, right? And so you're like, um, but I want to do like, you know, a Doja Cat style album or something like that. It's like sending oh, that into, would be a dream. I, into yeah. bubble gum. I love Doja Cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, I wonder, you know, it that's to me just an interesting like a uh, puzzle to solve, like how you would do that. Cause it is hard to think of any sort of precedent or anybody that kind of pulled something like that off when you get to what's the, there's this like cheesy self-help book called strength to strength, which is about like, you do this thing until you're like in your forties and then you have to change to doing another version of it, or you can't, you know, succeed. I mean, I don't completely buy that, but um you know, most musicians, like they get to a certain point and then they do shift into that, mm-hmm. that you can play it at the bookstore mode, you know, which is mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like a lot of that music, of course, but <laughs> it's just very different, you know? So I'm just wondering about that puzzle, you know, and how that, <laughs> how to even make that work is interesting to me. Huh. Well, I don't, one thing is, one thing that I'm very happy about, because I've done, I told you this, that I was thinking a lot about that jazz um, topic, because I did a tour that we called, that was called Nina Searching for Jazz. Uh-huh. And then my joke was that at the, I don't know if I did this, I don't remember, but I was also thinking at the end of the last show, I'd be like, and I fucking didn't find anything. Because <laughs> it was like, I searched the search and I didn't find it. But, uh, um, <laughs> I'm so happy that alongside of doing that, and also this, because the James Yorkston project is, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, adulty. The, yeah. top, the subject matters are, are for sure um, really relevant to the time of life we're in, in, in a great way, I think. But I'm really happy that alongside of this, with like five shows or something a year, plus and minus, I do the cardigans as well, which is completely, mm. in a way, it's timeless because it's it was written when we were, you know, and before our brains were fully formed, mm-hmm. and they uh, and they still, you know, and we, we sort of play things that we find some sort of relevance with, but it feels useful, and it's you know kind of you know athletic shows we do, you know, and, and it's very much power and mm. high, you know, high volume and a lot of sort of things going on so i'm having that all the time by my side is great because that sort of keeps me feeling like it's um um and and that's it's nice to play music that we we haven't made newer material too i mean i don't i mean it would have been interesting to know what that would have been too but i don't know if the cardigans do you know translate into the life we have now I find it really hard thinking of what the hell I would write if I would write new Cardigans material. So I think it's so nice that it, but we've sort of left it, we've, we left it in a world where we were, you know, in a different part of life and we carry it with us and it's to- still totally relevant. It still represents me completely, you know, although um, yeah. I don't know if I could um, write that music now. Well, I mean, part of the reason why I think it must work is, you know, most of it, I wouldn't say all of it, but like most of it is quite timeless. Like it doesn't sound dated, which is one of the most striking and weirdest things about the cardigans. I mean, I think there might be some songs in Gran Turismo, maybe a few others that sound like a little 
which which is funny because Gran Turismo was kind of ahead of its time when it came out, but now some of the songs seem a little locked in mm-hmm. in an era. But most of your songs, like they don't sound held by or dated, you know, at all. So when you say there's a timeless quality or I'm able to just go in and engage with it, you know, it's because there are a lot of bands that are still touring bands that, you know, had their big heyday, you know, 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. And people are obviously going to see them for nostalgia. I'm not saying no one's going to see you guys for that reason, but it wouldn't evoke that sense for me at all. It still feels completely new, um, which is so weird. I I don't know how. (laughs) I don't know how. I mean, part of it is obviously because, you know, like I looked at the guitar. I mean, I'm an idiot guitar player. I can't play anything. But when I looked at the like chords online to try to play a few songs. I was like, I can't play any of these. These are like insanely complex and your melodies are very complex as well. And so all of it is just, I think at this level where it's very layered and complicated and yet listening to it sounds much simpler. And so I think it, Mm. uh, I think there might be something there too, like time-wise the way it's layered, how it's, you know, sounds simple, but is quite complicated. It doesn't, it's not stuck anywhere, you know? That, that's something that struck me too. And it's funny you should say that thing about Gran Turismo because now we try to sort of, I mean, we still have shows coming up and we try to we try to analyze a little bit what we've been playing lately. And we also ask like our crew who keep hearing us over and over to have <laughs> feedback. And everybody is saying now that the songs that sound the worst are the Gran Turismo ones because they we're still... They, they, those songs require a little backing, some backing tracks, you know, because they're mm-hmm. based on sounds that uh, are very specific. That's hard to recreate with um, our instruments, otherwise. And those sounds are now, since they were made like in the late '90s, they sound so terrible at this point when that development has been going so much mm-hmm. further. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's clearly that the ones when we try to go into a, in a into an like electronic expression. Um, other ones who did not stand the test of time as much sort of although the songwriting is still uh, feeling good but yeah it's like we're but it's something like uh, it's easy to say, right now i just happen to feel sort of you know like the the shit because <laughs> the 90s are so everywhere you know mm-hmm. and both the uh, both, you know, our own, like all generations are sort of paying attention to them and glorifying the 90s again. And the the new the kids, for sure. My son only listens to music that came out of the 90s and he's... Oh, he's really? So, yeah, you know, all wow. this stuff pretty yeah. much that that, uh, that me and Nathan, um, that was formative to us, he's going through now. So <laughs> but right now, it, it feels like it is relevant. Do you see what I mean? There's been period when I've yeah. really been feeling yeah. like shit. We're not, pe- we're not. People don't care right now at all. You know, it's been different sort of um, different shifts like that. Yeah, but now you have like the resurgence of Step on Me, right? Because of <laughs> TikTok yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about 
listening to music with your family. Um, so you brought that up a little bit, but maybe maybe we come back to that because I do want to ask you, since we're talking about development a little bit and through time, you know, your singing voice has really, uh, really developed, I mean, really changed and developed over time, for, at least for me as a listener. Um, mm. And I remember when Super Extra Gravity came out and I played it for a friend, which came out in what, 2005, was it? Um, so Five or six, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, the friend that I played it for only knew much earlier stuff. And I remember her saying, like, oh, my God, she can really, really sing, you know. And it wasn't that you couldn't sing before, but there was that kind of breathy, um, there was a different technique or something else was happening. And so, and then from that to the solo album to now, it's like, I mean, (laughs) I'm wondering, again, I don't necessarily want to talk about how you did that. Although if you want to, I'm happy to hear it. But again, it's just the sort of your own experience of a developing voice, you know, within that just keeps changing. And um, by deepening, I don't necessarily mean getting lower, but I mean like (laughs) deepening, you know, and your experience and your ability to sort of work with it and everything. You know, I almost wonder if you ever sound like a stranger to yourself now because it's changed so much or if it, yeah, or if, if you feel a continuity there. Yeah, it's a total uh, continuity, I would say, um, because what I would say I maybe feel a stranger to is the way I sounded from the beginning, because there's certain cardi- early, early cardigan songs that we've tried sometimes to bring up and play again, and it's impossible because mm. I just can't um, think like that anymore. Or if I do, I feel so restricted. Like what? You know, it's a good example. Stylistically, I just—it's—it's uh, it's super stylistic. It's—it's it's like singing in, in a way where I, I just—I get a body memory of how I was planning out and thinking mm. how I was going to sing it. You know, and also like the part of the band that we had a very strong sort of aesthetic that we followed. Well, now I—I I just sort of do much more intuitive, mm. and also actually have more tools. I had a. I had a great thing happen to me, like everything in my life always happens by chance. But it was when I had a long, I mean, it's not by chance, when I had my kid, when I was, so I had a long time of not working as a singer, two, three years or something like that, maybe two years. Um, and it was so great. Plus, I also suddenly had something that really occupied my mind. And I also got some music out of my head, thanks to having a kid, you know, because mm, your brain uh-huh. just can't <laughs> host as much. Because uh-huh. uh, I feel like I really sort of uh, reset everything. Then uh-huh. uh, I reset my relationship to singing in the best way because I was not singing professionally in a way where I had to prove anything. Uh, if I sang, I would sing. I would hum and sing kids what or sing whatever to my baby, which uh-huh. is complete. Which was so resetting because it was, it just came from a whole different place. Wow. We would also have music playing at home. There was something completely different mm-hmm. than what I had been. It was a complete reset, and it was so fun mm-hmm. to start uh, singing again and to be so having also, also because vocals and your behavior vocally really gets like any muscle. You train it, and you get stuck in a so mm-hmm. easy to get stuck in a way. So by not singing for a long time, I just totally forgot um, how what I did last sort of. 
So it was almost like I started from a new place. And suddenly it might have been that I actually also had a certain rest because I could sing. I could do notes that I didn't remember being able to do before or panicking about doing because I just thought that they were high. And mm. suddenly I could do it because I was so, I, I think I was just less stressed about it. Just like, oh, like this. And I was just up there <laughs> and down too, for that matter. I was like, whoops, God, how did I, how did that happen? There was Sorry. development by not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, so people could listen to the difference. Would you say, mm-hmm. what's the thing that came out just before that? And what's the thing that came out after that? So you can put them kind of side by side in here. Well, just, okay. Just before that was uh, the Colonia record, a camp. Once it settles down and the fire has burned out, what you think you'll find poking through the embers, memories that sting, little splinters of your doubt, things that you can live without. So I die. Give back the pieces of dreams that you sell me and trick my mind. And what came out after that would be Animal Heart, my solo record. Okay, okay, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I just love that you're saying that because it's just so clear that, I mean, as I'm sure you know, but this is a real, I'm sure you know this, what I'm about to say might sound a little glib, but I think this is a real grounded example of it, which is when you sing from the heart, it's different. And your heart, it's not that you're, it's not that you didn't have your heart in it before, but your heart actually changed after having a kid, you know, Mm. physically, but also, you know, really emotively. And so not just about the the throat, but you know, when who you are and your emotive self changes, the sound that comes out is different. I mean, and Mm. people say that about everything. It could be cooking Mm. pasta or, you know, making or making a song, but when your heart is in it and it must've been differently after, Singing songs to your, uh, singing songs to your son. Yeah, um, yeah. It was also my taste. Or like, I think uh, it's good to have a kid because you just get, you just don't give a shit as much about certain things. <laughs> I think I became less sort of conscious about. I, I also used to always have a lot of other people's voices in my head, thinking that people expected mm-hmm. me to do things a certain way, and also, you know, taste. I was a little anxious about what was the right way, way to, you know, right thing to like or right thing to imitate. And mm. and that also became less sort of um, important. Um, mm. And so maybe, maybe I will talk about singing with your family here because I mean, songs for, for children, like songs are 
always important in a different way too. So now I'm just thinking about the songs that my mother sang to me when I was a, a child and I can't sing those myself and evoke her. I can, Why? I can hear oh, you mean, yeah. I can hear them inwardly and evoke her. But if I had to sing it in my voice, it's just not the same. I'm not connected to what she offered. I mean, that kind of singing is so different than any kind of singing. Uh, the closest maybe is if I sing very quietly to my boyfriend. Like maybe that's it. It's like mm -hmm. I'm trying to transmit a kind of love and feeling and a sharing of what's in me with another person quite directly. And I, I think when kids, you know, it's like running around the house, your mom's playing the piano and trying to sing a song. People are trying to like throw together a song with, you know, a bongo or something mm -hmm. like that. Music takes this really funny place in the home. And I know I, I heard you talking about um, once like, well, uh, yeah, I didn't want to be a musician, but like, of course we sang folk songs and traditional songs mm. and stuff in my house. And so one, I'm wondering about how that takes place now with your family. I mean, because Nathan, your husband's also a musician, but then, um, you know, this newer presence um, hanging out with you guys all the time, but then also, uh, you know, just thinking about how much of that childhood music experience of your own you carry in and we, you can talk about it personally or maybe we could just we, we can also just talk about it more broadly and how it exists for everybody because i think it's a pretty universal ex experience yeah i really think so and then i think it's uh, everybody has it in their experience not everybody might have it that they also actually sang a lot growing up uh, uh -huh. you know it, with a with a um, family but to hear to hear it and you know, a lot of people might have remembering what was on the radio and what was played, you know, every, or what they cho chose to listen to. Mm. Um, so I think it, I really think it matters. And the good, the, the, I think, so for me, it's also the act of singing was something super joyful and fun and uh, mm. social also. And, uh, and also not something aesthetic. I mean, for sure there was, we, you know, uh, if you listen to records, we knew these people could sing because they got mm. to be recorded. But when you sang with everybody at a party or whatever, that did, that was not uh, that did not matter at all. I remember once uh, a friend of my my parents, who was so their generation, he during one of those parties and we were singing. He said like he told me that he thought I had a nice singing voice, and I remember being so like completely. Uh, shocked and like first of all that that was something that you commented on <laughs> in a way <laughs> and then i you know and i it was also like it made me really happy because i also it was just the best one of my top five nicest compliments ever in my life coming <laughs> from him because it was something that i cared about you know it, it mattered to me i liked it a lot and then that it actually also sounded good was just something you see what i mean it didn't really matter but it was mm. just an extra extra special if it also sounded good mm. like those people who deserve to be recorded onto <laughs> records, you know so so I, th that really meant a lot for me starting to sing more and eventually you know joining the band and stuff so um but I think the lightness of singing uh, is something I remember very much now. Not always. I have not always been in touch with it. But in in um, in keeping on singing uh, throughout my life, it, I've been thinking more and more about it, that I'm happy that I had that origin. I did not have parents who 
who would take me to like um, talent shows or anything. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was something that came naturally and easily. And that was also just like awesome. Mm. Felt good. You know how it feels to sing. Mm. It's good. When you forget about how it sounds and how it feels and to sing with other people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love singing, but when someone tells me that I have a nice singing voice, it's always because they've caught me singing. Like I don't like, Uh you know, I, I'm mortified very often to sing in front of other people, even though Mm. I absolutely love singing. It's like, you know, if people ask me my unfulfilled aspirations, one is to, you know, make music. The other is to learn uh, Arabic. Um, But the, Mm. but the, this idea that like uh, someone would say, you have a nice voice to me. I'm like, Oh fuck that person caught me. Like I was mindlessly like doing something around them or whatever. So, I mean, (laughs) I like our parting ways with the compliment. (laughs) So you're happy. Yeah, exactly. You're happy with the the compliment, but you're also a little bit ashamed that you were caught. Yes. It feels so, uh, it feels like such a responsibility. Doesn't it? Like for me, you know, I remember I was, you know, with my boyfriend and it was like the first time I, because I love, I love singing and I wanted to sing a song to him, but I was drunk and I couldn't, I couldn't get it to, I was trying to sing a Billy Bragg song to him and I couldn't get it because I was kept trying to hit the right, you know, um, the right harmony because I can't quite sing the ways of it. I like, and I just couldn't do it because I was so in my head about it. So you see the moment, obviously I'm not a professional singer, but the moment it leaves my mouth, I become uh, really, really in my head. Mm. And I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it was like that for you in the beginning. Cause you talk about, <laughs> I saw someone say that um, like you asked, Magnus to leave the room or something like that when you yeah. were singing to audition for the cardigans. So, yeah. yeah. It's hard to hard when somebody really is going to listen to you also when you're doing uh, something yeah, yeah. new that you haven't already tested out on some people. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> um, I mean, one other thing about your singing, I think that's really interesting to me is that, and I hope this doesn't come across as <laughs> rude at all, but I've never listened to a recording that actually captures that really presents your voice the way it sounds when you're performing. It's, uh, I think actually maybe the, this record with James comes quite close, but there's something, uh, I don't There's some different kind of presence, but it's not just, you know, some people sound a lot better on a record. You sound great on a record. Of course you do. But when you're singing live, there's just this extra kind of thing. And I'm always like, why can't people, why can't people get that somehow and put it, on the record. I don't know if you feel that way or um, maybe I'm saying something like fuck off. <laughs> but, no, I think it's I, uh, yeah. I think it's really interesting. I think it is that I mean the, the James Yorkston record was recorded live. Ah. Uh, uh. Which is great and and I was not allowed to I tried to get to sit by the computer and start mm-hmm. poking on my files and you know, but I wasn't allowed. And I have been super nitpicky about my vocals. And so, and I think I have had that in me in uh, recording records. Uh, also because I don't play an instrument, I guess, you know. I guess I've been getting super precise about my vocals. And it's often, it's never done live in the moment. That also sort mm. of makes it more formulaic, possibly. Uh, there is not that um, 
I think I think I overthink a little bit and live I just sort of actually lose myself in it a little more, bit more. I do, and I have just more adrenaline uh to project than to be in it and everything. So that's um that's interesting. I haven't recorded in a long time anything except uh you know James's. Mm. But I think it was nice also because we didn't do a lot of takes and stuff. So it was also like a now or never sort of mm. feeling about the recordings which i think might have brought that aspect when especially cardigan's records it's like legendary how we would sit and cut uh, <laughs> consonants and breaths and you know pro tools uh, we yeah. call it fucking fucking mosquitoes <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, what it is you have a mosquito and you just need to fuck it <laughs> and it's uh, uh, uh not good for for the spirit for anybody so i think you're right um I think on Super Extra Gravity, there are probably, and, and on Colonia as well, like there might be a few songs that like, but it it's always the moment, and, and on the solo record, there's always the moment when you're really belting it out, mm-hmm. that yeah. like it almost can't be contained by anything you would do to it. I mean, I think that's something that maybe people who haven't seen you live, they don't get like, you're quite loud in a great way like it's a quite a loud um voice it's really intense so for people that are maybe used to hearing something that sounds a little more you know <laughs> a little breathier yeah. um you know and so i think i think when you hit that edge which i think you do the most in those records probably it it does yeah. um get get through some of the production stuff um i'm i want to talk about um melodrama with you um when i so i met you because i knew your husband first this is obviously you know this this is for the audience so i met you because i knew nathan first but nathan was giving a reading of one of his novels um this is an excellent series of novels and i asked him there was like a q a and i was like why are all your works so melodramatic? I was like, you know, Shudder to Think is crazy melodrama. I mean, you couldn't get more weird melodrama than that. (laughs) You know, these novels, which are about giant world events and hard-boiled language, um, a camp, which has this like grandiose, you know, kind of flair to it. And, um, and melodrama is very, uh, it's very interesting to me. It's like, it fuels so much of what I'm interested in and what I care about in art. Um, You know, melodrama, obviously I think it's present in my book, but it just, it's so important to me, the exaggeration that shows me the true thing. So it makes me like things like Patricia Highsmith, um, Rainer Werner Fassbender, but then also, you know, don't you know love is stronger than Jesus? Don't you know love can kill anyone? Your lyric, or and then you kissed me, then you kissed me too. These songs, are, they're so the lyrics are so, uh, in some ways, uh, over the top, but then also really deeply personal and affecting because of this exaggeration. So, you know, even I'm thinking of the crowning, um, the first song on Colonia by a camp where it's like, it's about something different. It's not about the usual themes of love, but yet it's like the most excessive <laughs> uh, list of details of meals of, you know, ornamentation. 
And so I, I'm wondering about that place of exaggeration and melodrama for you, because uh, interestingly, it draws me in and makes me feel it's so much more personal in a way. Yeah, I I love I love uh, childish ways of expressing real things. You know, I I, so I love language and I love literature and I love somebody who can really work language. But if you get too clever and too sort of sublime with words, it can just it just get it just it only gets intelligent, mm. and you lose. Uh, where it hurts or where you feel it or where you see, I mean, I think there's, the, there's some power in banal thing and exaggeration and um, juvenile ways of, you know, you know, when you're so angry, you lose the words, whatever you say then, even if it's probably usually things you shouldn't have said, if they're, if they're quite real, you know, and you get to the core in a way. Mm. I like that. And I think this naivete, I think there's a lot of, lots of power in that, that I think is really, just because that's where we, we, we're not controlled enough to be refined and to be and to be um, embroidering things. You know, I think I like that. I think that to me, that's an, an aesthetic. I really like that sort of humor also in a way. And, mm. and also, I think it's really fun. I tried to, when I, I don't really know, I don't have a ton of tools to teach writing lyrics. But I think one thing I usually say is like trust randomness. Do you know, uh, did we ever talk about the pataphysics, you and I? Uh, the, the movement. Kanoe is one of the writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, I don't think I'm we've talked to, about it now. But go ahead. But you know, did you know, do you know this book called A Hundred Thousand Million Poems? No, I don't. Oh, that's the best book. And it's the best thing. I'm going to actually yeah, see yeah, if yeah. I can yeah. find go, it. Because go I, find it. I recently had it out for teaching. It's something I always bring. My, I can't give it to my students because it's a rarity, but I encourage them to make their own. It's just as a beautiful um, piece of uh, book also. It's a book that you might, you can only use it if you see the actual physical book. He, it's, uh, the pages are cut up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are you Got seeing it. it? Yes. Yeah. And I'll include so a can, picture uh, of this in like the show notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a copy of it, and uh, I bring it to to class because I think if you mm. mentally think of writing lyrics like that, it's a pretty good tool. Because even if what you come up with by just throwing random things in mm. is good, it's evocative to something that wasn't so controlled, and it's something that I mean I don't really know how much I I can talk about the subconscious and. And all that stuff, really. But it, but you get in touch with something because it reminds again reminds you of something that that you think sounds real and 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 right. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I I love this. It's there's so <clears throat> you know what first comes to mind is the way that people give themselves limitations, right? So mm-hmm. like uh, he's you know related to the Olipo as well, um, the the literary group where it's like George Perec wrote this book that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't know how he wrote it, but then someone translated it, which is translated into English is called a void, um, where he didn't use the letter E in the entire. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, (laughs) so there's a void and he avoided it. Um, and I can't believe somebody was able to translate it. That to me is also shocking, but, um, but this idea of creating limitation, this is something, um, 
it is creating limitation, but it's something different. It's encouraging in some ways, not, not, uh, not limiting yourself. Mm -hmm. In other words, just sort of moving to the image that comes again, like uh, Will Will Oldham talked about this in a a songwriting uh, lecture he gave to uh, some, to young people. And he was just talking about how he, he was writing a song and these strange things would come up like, uh, the, the funniest images and he would just put them in. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, over time in songwriting, you probably end up editing, but the, uh, the idea of, uh, just going where, you know, where, where you're attracted mm-hmm. to, you know, yes, and then trying to make the song worthy of those attractions, um, mm-hmm. is, yeah, that's really interesting. Also, uh, one thing I think is really funny and always making it fun to be alive is that it's more, sometimes it's more fun to go in what you thought somebody said than what they said. Do you see what I mean? (laughs) Uh To mishear somebody can be the best thing because it can be so wonderfully absurd and way more funny than reality. Uh You know, it's similar to it in a way because, you know, your first impression can be hilarious and it's a disappointment when you find out what it actually was <laughs> it's sort of the same, like a hint of something is can be the best instead uh-huh. of going in and be all sort of explanatory and <laughs> what well, i mean that is something that's funny about some of the cardigans lyrics i think that there's just a little like for, especially some of the earlier ones there's like uh little like Swedish to English translation things that make some of the words just very strange, the words that you chose Mm -hmm. to rhyme. Like they don't have the same connotation. It may be that, and, and yet like it works really well, but it's that weird semi little twist in the word. Um, Well, this is a later one, but when you're, there's a song where the lyrics are, uh, you know, I can be anything you want, like an enemy or, is it an enemy or company? I mean, that opposition, not enemy or friend, but mm. even that, it just feels strange to me um, in mm. a good way. It's surprising mm. and unlikely that set. Violence and death <laughs> coupled with love. I mean, there are lots of songs that are, I'd die for you, or I just mm. died in your arms tonight, or you know, whatever. Oh, yes. But <laughs> I, And I love that song, by the way. Oh. But, <laughs> I just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so great. But but really dripping with 
violence. I mean, in, in mm. a lot of the songs. So um, again, that is a melodramatic move. Obviously there's real violence and love relationships and all that, but um, the way it's presented has this kind of melodramatic gesture, big gesture to it often. But like, I want to talk about, you know, violence in, in this music, which is, uh, you know, in your music, which has often been pop music, you know, as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think it's often been more or less in relationship to romantic love. Uh, and and it's, it is for sure a way of talking about, you know, men's violence against women or men's violence, period. And how you also sort of tend to do things and accept things in the name, you know, in mm. romantic relationships that are way, that are violent and really horrible. It's a way of talking just like love about like how you start, I mean, loveful is that's it all about what I always write about in a way to the things we do and accept um, when it comes to romantic love, how peculiar it makes us and how irrational it makes us and how interesting it makes us because it, again, it makes us lose our, you know, our rationality a lot. So, but I also think that again, it has to do with that. I think it's, uh, I think it's, cause I think it can get, so you can, you can use, a million beautiful world, words to describe how you experience something or what you feel about something or anything. But I think it's pretty dope sometimes to just go to the core. You know, it felt like, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. again, because yeah. it's because it's, it's also actually something that makes it accessible in, in a weird way. Mm. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't require you to be like a, a well-read person or, you know, somebody to even... They is really basically understand the language. You know, I think when I say you hit me, uh -huh. any, anybody uh -huh. in the world is going to be like, what? You know, like you, yeah. you get it. It's simple. It's simple and it's direct and it's sort of, and I also think it's, uh, it, 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 you get to feel it, you know, mm. it's not gray. <laughs> you get, you get right to the core. Does it, now that these songs that you're singing um, on James's, <clears throat> with James's project. Um, do, now that those songs are more domestic, almost, uh, every day, mm -hmm. almost, and you're not, I mean, sure, there is some melodrama to them. Um, mm -hmm. uh, everything was fine, then up jumped the devil, and then everything was lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, mm -hmm. There is some melodrama, but they're much, they're much more about being at home, taking a walk, mm -hmm. seeing, you know, uh, being on the beach, these kinds of things. So do you find like the vocal, like the, the way that you're uh, approaching them singing feels different? Um, not in the, not in the, con not in the content of the lyrics necessarily, but just actually in singing. Well, the lyrics, <laughs> the lyrics leave a lot of space for interpretation sort of, and then it might, differ because I still think that there's a lot of different tones and sort of density in this in his writing. First of all, the music lives gives a lot of space. If I didn't sing with a lot of investment, the music would be quite dull. I mean really you need it's just two of us also often when we play live. Yeah. So we need to yeah. be we need to be really in the moment and expressive sort of in what we do. Um also on the record when there's more musicians. But I think it is, um, I'm trying to think, well, it's nice because the, the melodies he writes, I think they're really beautiful, but they're not very complex. And they're also quite 
restful for a singer because it mm. means that you you don't have to it's not athletic i sometimes call like the cardigans is a little athletic sometimes mm-hmm. it means that it's very um exerting sort of takes a lot of energy so it's and it's very tight often you know um, mm. but james's music has a lot of space and a lot of you know a lot of room for variation and stuff also day to day sort of and i think that's really nice and fun um mm. it it also can be it and it's also nice because doing it uh, we don't have to pay so much we don't have you don't have to put all your energy into remembering what to do or co- focusing on what's going to come next in the music so it's fun because every day is kind of different mm. And we often actually just look at each other and giggle because something new happened. We were like, whoops, whoops. <laughs> and that's really fun. People might not notice, but for us, it's hilarious. And it brings yeah. joy to us, you know, and it keeps our um, attention there I noticed all the time. when you're playing, you know, I mean, I've no, it, like I noticed when I saw you play, yeah. there are these little <laughs> moments where you're like, oh, well, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so much this, uh, um, there's a lot that's left to chance, which which I like mm. about it. But the thing is, he talking about writing about darkness. He does something that I that I find interesting and challenging. He's written. We're working on new material right now, so he's presenting new songs that he's written. And there's one song that even just in a rehearsal room, I could not sing through it without needing starting to cry. So I'm seriously wondering how the hell I'm going to be able to tour with it. Because if it's, some days you're not strong, you know, Mm. and I can't, it's, it's about the, the darkest shit that, that there is that I can't even write about, which is, which is losing your child. Mm. And that, that is so, so he's written about that, which is insane. And I'm going to sing it. And it's so, it's so difficult, but Mm. that's, that's also something that's so heavy that I, you know, can't even, I'm trying to not think of it most uh-huh. of the time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, about, you know, I, when I was so, in that way, when I write, it's fiction. This is, this is not, you uh-huh. see what I mean? This, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you're like, it's like someone talking about a disease or something like that. You're mm-hmm. like, I better get out of this conversation quick because I don't want that yeah. to happen. Yeah. <gasps> Like it yeah. causes the kind yeah. of like fear of evocation or something like that, but it's, you know, so I, I, <laughs> I completely understand. Um, going back to being a kid, hearing music in the house, all that, and, you know, knowing you came from a religious place uh, in Sweden, um, which is interesting in and of itself, because I think most people from outside of Sweden don't think of Sweden as a particularly religious place. Um, yeah. And having that to kind of, you know, bounce off some sense of rebellion, resistance to, or whatever. I'm interested, first of all, if you still carry some of that with you in your music, but also the ways in which uh, Sweden affects your music um, brings something to your music versus uh, your other home in New York. Um, if the kind of spiritual and landscape contours of what you do musically are informed by moving back and forth um, <laughs> from these two places. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
a lot of the last musician I just had on the show, um, he's in a band called Lancome and he, they play, you know, Irish traditional music, but they make it very strange and dark and weird. It's beautiful, but you know, so much of the ground here is in their music. I mean, it just grows up through everything they do. And, you know, Ireland's special relationship to music is quite, you know, present. I'm wondering if that's still happening for you, especially with moving from one place back to another, back to another. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think these are going back to you asking about coming from, um, well, so my family, there was a lot of singing and it was not in the church because my family was not religious and neither were their friends necessarily. Um, and being in a place with a lot of churches, <laughs> growing up in a place um, that was so uh, religious and had so, so many churches and everything meant that there was lots of music everywhere. And uh, so the local metal band was a Christian band and the local, you know, lot uh, more than, it wasn't just religious music, even if they probably had messages in there. So I think actually what that's given me is sort of like an, an, uh, an openness to it, sort of. That it, in a way, it doesn't matter where you come from when you make music. Making it and being generous about it is what counts, kind of, you know, because that's what it was. That's, that was my experience of religious um, contexts and growing up around it. And I think what I took away, I'm still not really a believer, but I'm absolutely not an atheist. So I think what it, I'm happy about growing up in a place like that, having an atheist mom, um, is mm. that I also had all these kids around me who were, their families were always uh, doing things in the church, but then they came to school and there we were all mixed up and how it also doesn't really have to matter because we're all, you know, mm. you know, we're all, we're all doing and believing in our own shit. It doesn't, people, I don't really remember it as being p people trying to push things down your throat because it was so present that I think everybody just assumed that we were okay. all in church. It, you see what I mean? That didn't matter. So I think think that that plus um, going leaving Sweden and coming back and traveling a lot and being in New York, uh, I'm happy about it because it makes you see things from different angles, kind of. Mm. So I think that um, it it has uh, it has made me look at myself as a product of Sweden very much, you know, and it has it has also made me look at myself as a product of an atheist mother in a very religious place, you know, and trying to, you know, how you navigate who you are and where you come from uh, in different parts. And it also makes you see what's the common denominators often, you know, what mm. we all have that, that, that sort of unites rather than, and that, you know, I do not. And also one thing about Sweden is I was thinking about it when you were talking about your, the, person you talk to who's from Ireland, what we don't have here in general is a connection to our own history and traditions. So that, I mean, I happen to, the, the music my fam that I grew up with as a child was very much traditional stuff. So I do have that for sure, which is good. But I was just touring like Italy, for example, and I was shocked at how like the dudes in, in uh, you know, black t-shirts with um, music print on who'd ran the local uh, music club who booked us 
how they were, you know, doing that thing at night. And then they had to go to bed because in the morning they were going to be up and marching with the Italian Alpini army, you know, because it was a hundred years ago since something, you know, how they have it. So it's so much more present. And also actually in Ireland, for example, and, and Scotland to a certain extent, I'm touring with James. So tradition is very present there also, uh, both in, in his music ma- making, but also in, in their soul. And s- there's not much of that in Sweden at all. Mm. I find, especially, um, when it comes to, you know, creating pop music, it's a little bit uh, hip right now. A couple of really cool artists are doing folk um, adjacent music and it's being very accepted and uh, loved right now. But it's uh, it's really been not um, considered, you know, interesting at all for, lo- for, as, for as long as I've been doing music sort of. So I see quite little, you know, and the thing with the, Swedish bands that have been, um, you know, Swedish pop music has, oh, I think ABBA planted something in us that it's possible to be Swedish and to sound like England and America or whatever we're looking towards. So it's planted something where you know that if you just do it a certain way, there's a ticket for you to lead. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, Sweden in many export, ways are yeah. absorbent, yeah, absorbent of what's going on elsewhere. So we're not really looking at where we stand too much. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so has it cultivated, I mean, doing more traditional music with someone who is known as being quite connected to traditional songs and folk music from his place, has that stirred up uh, the interest in looking into that in Sweden or, <laughs> or no? Well, I, I sort of keep it with me a little bit. Uh, usually, because it did, it was something was formed in me a long time ago that I still really love. There was a the wonderful Swedish singer Monica Settelund. She actually was you would call her a jazz singer, but she did interpretations of Swedish folk music. That's amazing. Mm. And there is a lot of that that I grew up with, and I and I've been doing some of her songs uh, in some constellations throughout. Mm. And I and I still actually when. James and I were alone in a car driving to Kilkenny Roots Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I just suddenly felt like I had to share the folk, Swedish folk songs that I remember by heart. So oh, I just wow. sat there and recited them to him in the car. He didn't, of course, understand a word of what I was singing, but it was really <laughs> fun too. Because I know he appreciates melodies of them and stuff too. So I just sat there and sang my whole arsenal of Swedish folk songs. So I do have it in me. I, I, I love it. Uh, actually, I don't listen to it so much, but it's uh, it sits in me. But it, it's uh, and there's always like um, you know a, a melancholy that is. But it's also sort of remote because it's also a lot about you know I'm I'm not a nature person, for example, and I'm you know there's also things that I, I have not inherited. It's funny that you say that though, because there's so many natural like. I was just thinking, well, how does that show up in your music? And I was thinking of. Um, there's a lullaby quality to some of your songs. There are animals mm-hmm. in lots of your mm-hmm. songs, not just animal hearts, but you know, bears and you know, like there's yeah. a there is a lot of this uh permeation of the natural world into the songs that you sing and that kind of folk uh and domestic move sometimes, mm-hmm. even in um. You know, what am I thinking of? Uh, 
you know, well, there's Iris, right? But then there's like also there's Moonlight. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these things that would show up in these folk songs that actually do <laughs> come in on your music. Yeah, that's true. They're all, but they're also very like symbolic and sort of archetypical yeah. things that I think are fantastically valuable to work with. Mm-hmm. Having also been, to, I'm pretty affected right now, having just been to Italy, we we went to this fantastic, the Bone Church. Have you heard mm. about it in Rome? Mm. Oh, it's amazing. It's got some crypts where they made art out of the bones and skeletal parts of like 3,200 dead um, priors. Uh, yeah. yeah. Priors. Yeah. Really, really cool. But I was really sort of like, oh, Catholic imagery is the best. So I was really <laughs> excited about that because that's also so symbolic heavy and so useful. I was really, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's good to. Really inspired. It's interesting because I was raised without religion either. I mean, I wouldn't say my parents were atheists, but, um, you know, my mom was raised by religious fundamentalists. My father came from a village in the mountains of Syria where you couldn't really replicate Mm -hmm. the kind of tangle of, you know, religious and spiritual streams that had come into his life. So I grew up without it as well. And I was surrounded by. It was like the, the religious kids almost had their own cosmos, you know, it's like they were talking mm-hmm. about, they were all religious, you know, around me, but they were like talking about the Bible, they like knew hymns. So, there's a whole musical tradition that's like around me, I don't know anything about, you know, it was like str- being on an alien world in, in some way, or I suppose being an alien on, a, you know, like their, their earth, um, but I am very drawn I mean, now I have a very, very intense spiritual life, as anybody who listens to the show would know. But it, but I was very drawn to like the Catholic imagery and all that kind of stuff then mm. as well. It's like uh, it always wants to find its way in because it does have real value and and mm. and meaning, you know, especially mm. for art, animals and nature. These things you don't necessarily have to be have a personal relationship to to know what it's loaded with. These things uh-huh. sort of. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to have this con- have had this conversation with you, Nina. And um, you know, for someone whose music I've been listening to for a really good chunk of my life, you know, and kind of growing up with the music, you know, having this conversation in some ways is like a, almost like a relief to me, like that I get to have this conversation with you, mm-hmm. but also uh, I'm just thankful for everything that you've offered and continue to offer um, with your music and your voice. Colin, you're so sweet. Thank you. Um, um, it means a lot. Thank you. And thank Lovely you. to be on your on your show also. <laughs> thank you. And thank you uh, so much, everybody, for listening. Bye now. Why don't you ask yourself the hell are you crying for? Are you crying cause I'm leaving you? I don't want you anymore. Are you crying for our broken home? The picket
So what?